understand what it means to be in association with Jesus the King. And I, I, I want to anchor this into a couple of points in the scripture. Um, but what my prayer is for us this morning is that we walk out of here actually either having experienced something or walking out of here primed to experience something. So that it's not just education. It's not something that is, that's just increasing our theology knowledge or Bible knowledge, but it's something that we walk out feeling qualitatively different. So that's my prayer. Um, I was at a conference, well, speaking at a conference up in Cheltenham yesterday, and um, the, the first speaker was uh, a woman who is on staff at Waverley Abbey, um, spiritual director there, uh, and what she shared was just fantastic. It was really um, kind of unpacking my whole week, you know, things I felt God had been uh, saying to me all week. But I, I, one of the phrases she used, I thought I'd, I'd share this morning by way of intro, um, saying, uh, the scripture says uh, in the New Testament, I want you to understand, uh, brothers and sisters, that no word of prophecy ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And she made the point, this, this sense of being carried along by the Holy Spirit, that there is a, an impulse from the Holy Spirit, a, a rhythm, a flow, an energetic space. I don't know how, how we want to describe it. But there is a real spiritual impulse that is the movement of the, and the flow of the Holy Spirit. And our way of being as Christian people is to be in the flow of that. And that's a real thing. It's not just an idea. It's actually an, it's actually an impulse or a current or a wave or all these different metaphors we could use to describe it. But it's a real thing. It's not an idea. It's not a rational thing. In fact, the New Testament says that the, the natural mind cannot interpret or understand the things of the Spirit. And what is the natural mind? The natural mind is what comes naturally to the mind, which is logic, analysis, these things that we're very good at. I'm very good at it. It's my job, you know, being logical, being analytical, being rational. We, uh, those things are created by God and they're good, but they're not the leading part of life. They're secondary. And what we've tended to do in our society is elevate the rational and say, this is the leading part. And then the spiritual, the intuitive, the heart level either is disregarded altogether or it's put in second place. And that's not the way of the scripture. It's not the way of the Jewish faith. It's not the way of the Christian faith. Um, this is the natural mind. And the thing about the natural mind is it makes sense. The spiritual does not make sense to the rational mind, which doesn't necessarily mean it's irrational, but it does mean it's non-rational. It's non-rational. Irrational is when you say, well, by the standards of being rational, you're getting it completely wrong. Like, I'm, not against, I'm, I'm against irrational. Like, irrational is not what we want to be. Non-rational says these are things that do not fit in the category of rational analysis. They can't be subjected to it. So if you try to subject it to rational analysis, it's just not going to make any sense. It's not going to work. It's like saying, what color is the number two? The number, the number two isn't a color. It's, this, is, this is the wrong category. C color is not in the category of number, right? There's, so we have a category of experience that is rational experience, and the things of the kingdom do not fit into that category. In fact, they are, we maybe say they are supra-rational, like over, they come over the, the, the rational. But, then, but they are not able to be analyzed or interpreted. As soon as you put it into the category of rational, you've immediately lost it. It's diffused. It's gone. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, it's like trying to read a three-dimensional world with two-dimensional lenses. Um, it just doesn't work. And the New Testament is really clear on this. The natural mind just cannot receive the things of the Spirit. It's impossible. In fact, it says that the, the, the rational mind, the natural mind, is even hostile to the things of the Spirit. And that's, that's a description of, of, of an experience. That's Paul saying, look, I'm... I'm telling you, and by the way, Paul, maybe I've shared this before, but Paul was like the first class PPE graduate of his day, right? politics, philosophy, economics, interdisciplinary degree. He was the top of the class in the Roman education system, 
and he was the top of the class in the, in the Jewish mystical system. So he was this incredible synthetic thinker. He had a handle on all of the literature, all of the wisdom, all of the uh, theology, all of the religion, all of the science. He had been through that, um, that Roman classical education because when the Romans had taken over Judea, they wanted to train people who would be ambassadors for Rome, you know, who would kind of have a handle on all of this education. So Paul was one of those people. He has this incredible learning which at one point Governor Festus says to him, Paul, your learning, your incredible learning has driven you completely insane. And this is the, what the natural mind says to the things of the spirit. The governor's like, what you're talking about, Paul, Jesus being raised from the dead and all of this, you've blown a fuse, man. You've read way too many books. You've spent far too long, you know, up a mountain meditating or whatever it is you're doing. And you have definitely fried the circuits because this makes no sense whatsoever. So when Paul says the natural mind can't, except the things of the spirit. He's not talking in hypothetical terms. He's talking about his own experience. He's like, look, I've dealt with the rational mind. It cannot process the things of the spirit. Um, I think sometimes we read the Bible and we think about it very in very abstract terms, but this has been written from real experience. A real experience of walking with Jesus and living in the power of the Holy Spirit and trying to figure all that stuff out. That's what it means that the scriptures breathed by God, right? It's inspired by God because... Human beings carried along by the impulses of the Holy Spirit have then tried to put down into words what was being inspired within them through their lives. And they're just trying to work it out like we're trying to work it out. So the whole thing about the, the, the rational mind being unable to accept the things of the Spirit, this is a, this is a major, major component of the New Testament that is sadly overlooked um, I, I remember some years ago, I was on a ministry trip in East Asia, a multi-stop trip, and, and we were in Indonesia, and I, I was speaking at uh, the, the, most, um, the, the most well-known sort of flagship reformed Bible college in East Asia. And uh, I, I was talking to the dean, and he happened to be Taiwanese, and those of you who know me know I speak Chinese, so I was conversing with him. And he said to me, look, he said, this, I'm translating, he said, look, we're not, we're not charismatic, we're not a Pentecostal Bible college, we're a Reformed Bible college, which basically means all we teach is expositional Bible preaching. He said, that's what we teach here. He said, however, frankly, we know the only reason Muslims become Christians is because they see miracles. So, um, you know, so we, like, we understand that, you know, in, the, in this context, that the, the spiritual reality of the miraculous and these things. So we don't, we don't teach any of that, he said, but we know that that's, that's the reality, which I did think was ironic coming from a, a school of thought in the Christian church, which doesn't believe in miracles, right? <laughs> doesn't believe in healing. Very, very rational uh, school of thought. Anyway, um, I, I digress because I've got more time to. Um, so... Uh, so one of the things we, um, w- that one of the consequences of this is when we read the New Testament, we can draw lines between things in the Old Testament, you know, the sacrificial system, the Torah, all of that stuff. And we can see how the New Testament inverts and subverts the legalistic system of the old. That's well, a well-trodden path. What is not so well understood in our particular corner of the of the vineyard if you like is that there is a whole other um a whole other corpus of literature that we don't have in our bibles but they read in new testament times and the new testament equally speaks to and subverts that literature as well and it's the jewish mystical literature so for example when paul says i know a man who was took up into the third heaven you remember that bit? I don't know if you've ever read that and said, what on earth is he talking about? Like, where, where's, where's he even getting that from? Because it's not in the Old Testament. You won't see anything about three heavens in the Old Testament. It is, however, from a book called The Testament of Levi, which is, um, you know, maybe a, a second or third century BC Jewish mystical text. And, and when I say mystical text, it's about engaging with spiritual experience and engaging with the reality of heavenly realms and angelic visitations and all these sorts of things. Um, and when you, when you understand that that's there, you realize it's actually everywhere in the New Testament. That, but we're not aware of it because we haven't read those books, right? So when we read something like Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, those of us who are 
more au fait with the story of the Old Testament will know Jesus being baptized in the Jordan is a direct um, signal back to the story of Joshua when Joshua directs the Ark of the Covenant to go into the Jordan in order to stop the waters so the people can cross into the promised land. It's a, di- a direct link to that. And anybody who knows the story of Joshua will know that immediately. Um, it's, it's not opaque at all. So, uh, and, and interestingly, if you go into that story, the waters stop at Adam. It says there's a place called Adam, which is, of course, Adam. It, it's, the story there is once the presence of the, of the ark goes into the Jordan, then the supply line from Adam is cut off completely. And this is where you get the New Testament talking about the new humanity. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. Christ is the inauguration of a new creation. All of this. Where did they get it from? They got it from tracking with what the Old Testament was saying and in interpreting it through the lens of Jesus. But they were also doing that with the mystic texts. Book of Enoch, Testament of Levi, the Testament of Adam and Eve. All of these kinds of works that they don't make it into our Bibles. For good reason, they don't make it into our Bibles. But these were things that people read and it shaped their worldview of what they believed was going on. And it shaped their worldview of what they believed the Messiah was coming to save them from, crucially. Um, there's a, a uh, I, th- I think the scholar's name is, um, it's either David Heiser or Michael Heiser, um, wrote a book called Reversing Herman. He died last year, actually, but he uh, he's one of the scholars who really unpacks what is it that the New Testament Jews actually thought they needed to be saved from? What, the, what they were looking for from the Messiah. And broadly speaking, it was two things. One was the political rule of Rome. But the other thing was the spiritual oppression of demonic powers in the heavenly realms that were affecting them. So when the New Testament talks about Jesus disarming the powers and principalities and all this sort of language, it's speaking directly to the belief that the first century Jews had that there were demonic powers that were exerting influence over them on a day-to-day basis. So when Jesus is going around casting out demons and saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's because he's speaking directly to that. Because for them, they were saying the presence of these demonic entities in our society is indication that we're still enslaved to them. Now, when Jesus comes and he drives them out, it's showing us that the kingdom is here. That's a wake-up call that the kingdom of heaven is dislodged or is dislodging all the powers of darkness. So if we, if we, if we, don't, if we don't know how much that was their present reality, we're going to miss things because we can, only, we can only see what we know how to ask about. Um, there was an interesting study done. I think, the, the, I think it was Arthur Eddington was a, a physicist who was interested in the paranormal. And he, uh, he reported that he did a study. And the study was, he, um, in, in a big lecture room full of scientists, he put a bowl of, uh, like a fish bowl or something, I can't remember what it was, but he put a bowl at the front and he said, I want everybody in the room to chant om, and when you chant it, the bowl is going to levitate from the table. So we're all going to work to make the, the bowl levitate. So, and then he said, and I want a bunch of volunteers to come and stand around the bowl and tell us whether or not it actually levitates. <clears throat> now, as it happened, he had installed a magnetic device into the table, which was going to actually levitate the bowl. And so it did. He magnetically levitated the bowl and everybody was chanting on. But the point was, the people who stood around the table, several of those people, when asked afterwards, did the bowl levitate, they said, no, it didn't. So, and what did he conclude from this? He said, well, in this room full of scientists, all of whom are primed not to see or expect the supernatural, even when I had tricked them and actually did make the bowl levitate, they weren't able to see the bowl levitate, even though it actually was. And I know it was because we levitated it through scientific means. And what he, the point he made about this was, if you're primed not to see it, even when it happens, you can't see it. Which is a, a disturbing, <laughs> a disturbing um, reality to observe. But it reminds me of Jesus. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken. And when he, in the context of the, what, when he says that, he's talking about revelation. So whoever has revelation will see more revelation. Whoever does not have revelation, even the revelation they do have, 
is not going to make any difference. It's just going to fall to the ground, you know. And it, not, not that God will take it away, but circumstances will just remove the benefit of it. Like you don't notice it. Um, you're numb to it. Hebrews talks about having a, a hardened heart to the things of heaven, which isn't just about the supernatural. It's about faith, love, and all of that too. But um, it's the whole, the whole spectrum of the reality of God. Don't have a hardened heart. Um, and we, we can get our hearts hardened by engaging in the world in a way that is um, hyper-rational, where we think everything has got to be processed um, in this way. <clears throat> this is a, a particular Western, particularly a Western problem um, from the Enlightenment. But anyway, I'm not going to digress too much because I haven't got that much extra time. <clears throat> so with that in mind, what is the kingdom then? What is the kingdom? So you had... If, if, you, if you have this in mind, when you read the Gospels, you see all these different reactions that different people had to what Jesus was doing and all the different ways they imagined the kingdom was coming or not coming or what they needed to do about it. So even amongst Jesus' disciples, you had a whole mix of people. You had people like John who were, they, they were uneducated, but they were very mystically, kind of intuitively oriented. You had practical working class people like Peter, um, fishermen, you had professionals like Matthew Levi, you know, a tax collector and accountant. And you had the guy Simon the Zealot, you know, or Simon the Jihadist. So he's, he's a freedom fighter who's seeking to inaugurate the kingdom through armed resistance against Rome and overthrow them. Um, and and you, pe- people who have different, different things that speak to them about what they're hoping for and what they're expecting the kingdom to be. And all the while, Jesus is constantly interfacing with those things, but inverting them and, and flipping, flipping the tables, constantly flipping the tables and blowing their limited minds about what this is all about. And so um, I'll just give you, give you a couple of verses here about the kingdom. Um, so uh, in Luke, Luke 17, um, it's not coming up on the wall, um, just... Make a note of it if you want to go and look at it yourself. But um, Jesus has just cleansed the lepers. And this is another sign of the coming of the kingdom. Because leprosy is not something that can get cleansed. Um, and so when Jesus touches the leper, the leprosy leaves. In the, in the Jewish faith, if you touch the leper, you get contaminated by the leprosy. But when Jesus touches the leper, they get contaminated by the kingdom. Right? So it goes the other way. Um, it's an inversion. So this has just happened. And then the Pharisees, it says, verse 20, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them. So the Pharisees have seen this happen. They recognize this is a sign of the kingdom, but they're not happy with the way he's doing it for all sorts of reasons. So they're trying to interrogate him again. Well, what, you know, let's catch you out about the kingdom. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, or the kingdom of heaven does not come about by careful observation, one of the, the um, translations says. And why is that important? Because all these people are trying to predict, well, when is the kingdom going to come? We've got this timeline from Daniel's prophecy. We've got Moses. All these people telling us to look for the kingdom, and we're trying to plot a chart that tells us when it's going to happen. And they actually had some success in that, because if you remember when Jesus was born, um, the uh, Herod called the priests to come and interpret to him where is the Messiah supposed to be born. They say Bethlehem, so that's why this genocide happens in, in Bethlehem, because um, they, they actually had managed to get some distance towards, in fact, predicting when the Messiah would come based on Daniel's prophecies, which also the Magi did too, which is how they ended up there. They, they, were, they were doing it astrologically. I have no idea how they did it, but they did, um, and they, they ended up there. So, you know, Put, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I always think it's funny that, the, that, that um, you know, on, on Christmas Day, the magicians were present, but the logicians were conspicuously absent, right? <clears throat> anyway, um, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to observe. It doesn't come by careful observation. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. In other words, don't believe anyone who tells you, well, the kingdom's over there or the kingdom's over here. It's not something you can point to and say, oh, well, oh yeah, here, here is the kingdom. Now, we've had all kinds of terrible um, consequences of where people have tried to do that politically. Holy Roman Empire, the Crusades, 
the, um, the heavenly kingdom of the Taiping Rebellion in 19th century China, where 100 million people died because someone decided they were the, the, the younger brother of Jesus come to inaugurate the heavenly kingdom, you know. ISIS, um, the ISIS caliphate, this is the same thing, trying to take the kingdom and make it a political reality on the earth. So Jesus says, don't believe anyone who tells you that. If, as soon as they start on it, just hit delete right away. No, we're not, we're not having that conversation. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is not an external thing out there that you can point to and say, here it is, um, and here's, here's, here are its dimensions, here's its structure. Not at all. Um, he says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Um, point of information, this translation is incorrect. Um, <clears throat> most of the modern translations say the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It actually should say the kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, um, if, you, if you care to get into the Greek, people argue about it. Should it be among you or within you? However, I would point to the Greeks, the Greek church, who I think probably should be the best position to interpret Greek, and they unanimously say the meaning is the kingdom is within you, not among you. Because the kingdom among you just means, well, something's happening, something's happening here, which is sort of kingdom-like. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying actually within you, inside you, is the reality of the kingdom. And it's the same as when he says to them, you are the light of the world, right? He's not just saying, using a euphemism. He's actually saying, you are the light of the world, that the, the very divine light that brings transformation is coming from within you. And it's coming from within you because I am within you. So when Jesus says at the end of John, um, in that day, you will realize I am in you and you, and you are in me and I am in God. He doesn't say in that day you will realize I will be in you and you will be in me. He says in that day you will realize I am in you. And of course, again, those Bible scholars among you will know when he says I am, he's using the divine name, Yahweh. So um, he, he's pointing to a reality that they couldn't see because everything was projected externally. And he's saying, look, the kingdom reality is something that is a spiritual reality that is within you and comes from within you. Same language in, um, in John 4. The one who drinks of the water I give him from his, in the Jewish, it's from the kidneys or from the womb, from the depth of his being, that a spring of living water will rise up. So it doesn't say the water will pour in. It says the water will rise up from within. And then in John 7, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, the water will flow forth from him which goes back to Ezekiel 47, where the water rises up underneath the temple and then it proceeds from the temple heading eastwards and then it goes to the Dead Sea. When the water touches the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea comes alive. So ordinarily, if you mix fresh water and salt water, everything becomes salty. But in the kingdom dynamic, you mix fresh water and salt water, everything becomes fresh, which is back to the leprosy thing again, right? So the image here, and, and by the way, the temple... Um, Jesus says, my body is the temple, and you are the temple, you are the body of Christ. So this is, um, this is an inner mystical reality that then manifests in various different ways and different phenomena around us. It's not an external reality that gets imposed on the world that's somehow foreign or alien to the world, that's like an overlay on top of something else. It's something that comes from under the ground from the deepest, most fundamental place, and it waters the earth. Psalm 84, blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways of Zion. When they pass through the desert, they make it a place of springs. Meaning you, you move into the desert environment, and then the desert is terraformed. Like it, it just is the external environment that is dry, desert-like, and deathly comes into resurrection life. And it's, it's transformed by springs. Um, again, here's another one for free because I'm on a roll. Um, in, in the book of Genesis, it makes a point of saying, in the beginning, there was no rain, right? You remember this, Genesis 1, 2, 3. Um, in fact, it says that the land was watered by springs that erupted from under the ground. It's only in the flood that the springs stop and then you end up with rain. This, and this is a mystical teaching, right? What is it trying to tell us? Here's the problem with rain. Rain is really unpredictable. 
You look throughout human society, rain has been a problem continually. Rain dances, virgin sacrifices, whatever we need to do to appease the rain gods to get rain on our land, you can't predict it. It, It's too volatile. But if you go to Yellowstone Park in the US and you go and look at Old Faithful, the geyser, you can literally set your watch by it. It's completely consistent. A consistent upflowing, and it's not determined by the season, not affected by external factors or weather fronts. It's continuous. The Son of God is not yes and no. He doesn't blow hot and cold. In him, it's always yes. For as many as the promises of God that there are, they are all yes and amen in Christ. The New Testament is trying to point us to an experiential reality. It's trying to say, what does it feel like to be in the kingdom? And by the way, in the kingdom, um, really the, the, the Greek would prefer language, the language, the one who echoes with. In the Greek, um, who belongs to the spirit of Christ, the belong to, it's the word echo or suneko, to me, means to resonate with, the one who resonates with. So it comes back to the impulses of the spirit. Are we in entrainment with the impulses of the spirit? If you hang a load of mechanical clocks on the wall, they will synchronize with each other over time. It's a principle called entrainment, where the vibrations from the one and the other, they, they all end up you know, they all start out of order, but then in the end, they begin to all tick in sync. So the, the, the image there is there are impulses in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, and we are in training with those impulses. Soon echo, echoing with, resonating with. This is the language of the New Testament. So the kingdom of heaven is within you now, Jesus is saying, um, And then how does Paul describe it? Let me go there. What does he say the kingdom is? He says this in Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And when he says eating and drinking, that's about law, right? It's about a regulation of how you live your life. Eating the right thing and drinking the right thing is beneficial. Like it's good for you to do that, but that's not the kingdom. What is the kingdom? He says the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Which, at at the very least, and we can unpack what does he mean by righteousness, but let me just go with me on peace and joy for a moment. Peace and joy are emotional states. Right? They're emotional states. They're things you actually feel. (laughs) They're not, they're not just nice ideas. It's no good saying, well, I've got, I've got the kingdom of peace, but I'm not in peace. In fact, the the Bible criticizes people who say that. The, the, The prophets who come around saying peace, peace when there is no peace. They, they, haven't, they haven't cured my people. They haven't healed the wound. They've said everything's fine when it clearly isn't. Right? It's supposed to be an experience. Paul says the kingdom is not a matter of talk, but of power. He says, I'm going to come and see what people are preaching. They're preaching something different from me. I want to see what power they have. Because the kingdom isn't a matter of talk, but of power. Look at how clever sounding they are. I want to know. Demonstrate it. Right? Show me the money. Show me the goods. What does it mean to show me the goods? I, is the reality of that peace and that joy, is it a real living experience that is part of the impulse of the Holy Spirit setting the metronome of your life? Or is it just a nice intellectual idea that we talk about, but kind of we outsource to some mysterious future somehow? Well, well when that thing happens, then maybe we'll, we'll be in that position, right? This is, this is the, the, the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> Interesting. The man with one clock always knows what time it is. The man with three clocks never knows what time it is. Because I have three that say something different. My watch says quarter to 12. My phone says 5 to 11, which is really disturbing. And the clock up there says 20 to 12. (laughs) Pick one, yeah. Dangerous. let me, so let, let me, let me come into, let me come into the concluding bit, um, and I'd, re- I'd really like to give you a quick segue into, into Ezekiel, um, which I might do just rapid fire, and then if you're interested, you talk to me about it. But, um, uh, if we can understand, if we can recognize that the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual reality, and that's a reality that's in us by the Holy Spirit, then that's something we can experience and connect with and it can energize and inform our life on a moment-by-moment basis. 
I think that's how Jesus lived his life. When he says the son can only do what he sees the father doing, he can only speak what he hears. What does the son hear? He hears the father say to him, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. <laughs> when Jesus is baptized, he opens, he opens behind the curtain. Let me tell you what's going on in my inner world. You hear the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. So what does Jesus feel when he hears, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? I think it probably is quite a lot of peace and a lot of joy that emotionally energizes him from the voice of the Father. That's the continual witness within him. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? That's, that's the reality of the kingdom. But the great news is, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will take everything that's mine and make it known to you. In, within you. So if you're struggling with, well, is God pleased with me? Jesus is like, look, I've actually already opened myself up and put you in me and included you in the relationship I have with the Father so that you can experience everything that I experience. The spirit of reality will guide you into all reality. Better translation than truth, because truth can be an abstract concept, but that's not the Greek. The Greek is aletheia, reality. The spirit of reality will guide you into all reality. It's three-dimensional reality. It's the truth of it intellectually, but it's also the... Um, it bleeds when you cut it, right? It's, it's what John says, that which we have looked at, which we have handled, which we've touched with our hands, which we've tasted, um, multi-sensory experiential reality. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. So the word is not just a word. The word is multi-dimensional reality <laughs> that we get to experience right now. This is the Christian faith. Um, we clip out have clipped out, unfortunately, so much of the, the, the mystical component. So when, when Paul says something like, if I'm out of my mind, it's, for, it's to God, but if I'm in my right mind, it's for your benefit. What does he mean? He uses the word in Greek, ecstasis, and ecstasy. That's where we get the word ecstasy. So if, I, if I'm in ecstasy, and it literally means to stand outside of yourself, ecstasis, to stand outside. So he's like, if you see me, and I look like I'm completely skylined, right? That's what my relationship looks like with God. So if, if I'm coherent and in my right mind so I can communicate with you, it's only for your benefit. It's not for my benefit. It's for your benefit, right? Same thing. He says, I struggle with all the energy of God that so powerfully works within me. Same word he uses when he says, Epaphras is struggling in prayer for you. Same book, Colossians. Same word. So when Epaphras is struggling in prayer, it doesn't mean he's trying to work really hard to lay a revival egg. It means, he's like, Epaphras is so overcome by the energy and the impulses of the Spirit, which are directing him in compassion, concern, and love for you, that he's constantly praying for you. That something's energizing him, empowering him. Now, what the church tends to do, church writ large, is you read something like that and says, well, everybody should be really intense in prayer, so let's try and make everybody intense. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is, man, I can't, I can't even stop. I'm, I'm kind of just trying to take a break here, and I'm getting blasted around. You know, I'm not preaching the message; the message is preaching me. You know, I'm I'm not praying; I'm being prayed. Like if 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 the spirit is the breath, and the word is the vibration of the breath, and the word of God's might is what upholds your very existence, then it's the very vibration of God's breath which animates your existence moment by moment. And if that's this Holy Spirit interceding for you, then I think you are the continual unfolding of Jesus' prayer. Jesus is praying you. That's what I'm trying to say. Jesus is praying you. Not praying for you. He's praying you. Jesus doesn't need to pray for you. He's already pulled you into himself and sat you in heavenly places. He's praying you. Right? Your, your life is the unfolding of the dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, moment by moment. This is the reality of the kingdom, which we're charge to call people's attention to because the natural mind has covered it up and has gone asleep to it fallen asleep to it become numb to it switched off and has instead exchanged that for something that seems very reasonable but it is the false promise of rational logic as the way to live life learn everything get all the right answers and if you learn all the right answers then use your willpower to do the right thing and avoid the the, the bad thing and things are going to go well Completely subverted by, uh, by, by Jesus. <laughs> Completely sub- subverted. You are being prayed by Jesus right now. The constant, colorful, tumbling, overflowing of, uh, of his word is animating this very moment. 
This is sacrament. This is where we recognize the sacred presence, the holiness of the Father, Son, and Spirit in each one of us. We, we recognize and acknowledge. I've, I've been really on this thing about, you know, the, the, the bread and the wine. Why is bread and wine so significant? Because it bypasses the mind, right? It's a physical thing. It, it goes into your body, right? <laughs> he knows you have a problem with your mind. I, I'm constantly giving you all these different ways to just sidestep that thing because it's going to constantly give you a problem. It needs to be put into its proper place, which is subordinate to the Spirit, not in charge of the spirit. This is the, king, this is the life of the kingdom. And it's what it means to live under the awareness of the throne. Jewish mysticism, uh, the second temple mysticism, is all about the throne. It's all about a mystical encounter with the throne. Um, that's, I, I was feeling a bit, I was kind of feeling tempted to, to really take you into Ezekiel's vision. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to do it just because of time. But, but just to summarize it for you, Ezekiel has a vision of the throne, right? I don't know if you remember that. It's this crazy story. He, he, sees, um, he sees the wheels within wheels. You know, if you heard that phrase, wheels within wheels, it comes from Ezekiel. Um, he sees all these wheels covered in eyes, and he sees cherubs and seraphs, three different angelic beings, and he sees the throne. Um, but that, that vision that Ezekiel has is actually a sequence of, um, of mystical experience, which is referred to in the New Testament. Um, for those of you this way inclined, there's an academic called Timo Escola, Finnish academic, who wrote a book called Messiah and the Throne, um, uh, early uh, thr- throne room discourse and early Christian Christology or something like that. I think that's not, not quite right. But the book was all about how um, the, 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 the Jewish mystical tradition of encountering the throne in a vision, visionary form, informs the way that the Christians talk about who Jesus is. Jesus being enthroned. Why does he talk about thrones all the time? It comes back to Ezekiel's vision, and Daniel's vision, actually, both of those two. Um, in, in Daniel 7, he has a vision of one like a son of man who takes his place on the throne. So when Jesus is calling himself the son of man all the time, he's reminding us of Daniel. Right? But, so Ezekiel has this sequence, which I would love to do a whole day kind of teaching on this sometime, but, but each point in the vision is actually something experiential that is kind of a bit of like a, a map or a guide to what prayer looks like. And at a certain point in the sequence, he becomes aware of the throne. And this is about, it's, a, it's relevant to us because the question is, are we aware of the kingdom or are we not aware of the kingdom? If we're not aware of the kingdom, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to make us aware, which is why the Apostle Paul pretty much only prays for the church to have awareness. So I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray you may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, etc. It's pretty much the only thing he prays, which always confused me because I thought, why don't you pray that they heal the sick or why don't you pray that they're, they're really successful in evangelism or why, do you not, why don't you pray any of those things? Why do you always pray for them to see? All right. So, but the key thing in Ezekiel's vision I want to say, the moment when Ezekiel has an awareness of the throne, the very next thing that happens in the vision is he then has an, aware of, an awareness of an open heaven. So then the, the, it's like the, for him, the ceiling in the sky recedes, and then he's aware of the complete expanse of the firmament. Which again, in the, if you know the mystical language, this is indicative of the barrier between heaven and earth has been split in two, so the, and which is called the veil, right? The, the, veil, the veil in mystical language is, whatever gets in the way of us being able to experience things the way they really are. So if the whole earth is full of the glory of God and we're not able to recognize that glory, it's veiled. So in the New Testament, it says for the, for the Jews, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. It's, it's veiled. So the image of the veil is an important one. And you'll remember when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil in the temple is torn in two which is significant because it's saying there is no more. The veil has nothing more to say to you. It's an illusion, it's, and it's only paper thin. Push it and, and it'll collapse. But in our experience, we still find many ways in which we're veiled, right? Many ways in which we don't see things the way that they are, which is why we need to preach and teach and do this stuff, do the spiritual warfare, which is declaring of the gospel. This helps us in our experience get past the veils, Lots of stuff happened. Fear comes in, stress comes in, tragedy comes in, and it veils the goodness of God from us. And once again, we feel like we're grounded 
and we're under oppressive spiritual forces. For Ezekiel, the key thing for him is at the moment when he's become aware of the throne, then he's also aware of the open heaven. No more veil. So in, in terms of how people like the Apostle Paul, what did their prayer practice look like? A lot of it looked like in, engaging in contemplation on the throne. That's, just, that's how they did it. So a lot of this discussion about throne, etc., etc., it, it all comes from, from that tradition. That's what Ezekiel's giving us in, in his vision. He's giving us a sequence of prayer. Um, so when Revelation, well, when Ephesians says, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places, it's telling people who understand this business of the throne is really important, and they're dealing with all kinds of stressful, difficult things, um, but Paul's trying to remind them, but I'm, I'm trying to tell you, you are actually on the throne right now. Like, when you contemplate the throne, you're not contemplating it up there anymore. You're actually on it, in Christ. You're, the spiritual reality is you're more seated in Jesus on the throne than you are seated on these wonderful plastic chairs that are ubiquitous in church, right? You're more seated there than you are here. That's, that's the awareness that the Holy Spirit is inviting us into. So that what we're living from is that anchoring, the peace, the joy, the assurance that comes when we, we recognize that there is an unbroken divine flow from how Jesus feels about things and what's going on inside us. That gives us strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord, the Lord's joy, Jesus' joy is my strength. <laughs> His joy that he feels, that he fully shares with me, that's, a, that's the thing that's supposed to make me strong to be able to do life. This is very practical. <laughs> it's very practical. When we go through our day-to-day lives... That if you don't feel very joyful, then you're trying to pull energy from somewhere else. We pull energy from duty. We pull energy from fear. We pull energy from beating ourselves up. We pull energy from discipline. All these other things we pull from to enable action. But the New Testament position is, but it's Jesus' inner world is the thing that is powering our action. That's what we've been given in him. But we miss it so often because we haven't, rightly identified where the kingdom is. I'll finish with this now. In the world today, it's freaking crazy, right? It's crazy. Um, On on all counts, it's crazy. I mean, isn't it? Don't you feel like you're taking crazy pills sometimes? You know, you look at the news, hear people talking. I mean, the level of stress is just through the roof. Well, I mean, last, last I checked, our faith is about inner peace, right? We're supposed to have inner peace. That's not, that's not the purview of New Age religion. Like that's Gospel 101. It's inner peace. The peace of the kingdom inside, right? Um, and it, it's, this is what our community uh, is, is, is supposed to do, is to foster an encouraging environment where we help each other get over the different veils which creep in so that we get to experience the reality of Jesus. Not just talk about it, but actually live it. The reality of it. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So when we, when we go forth, or even when we're here, whatever it is, go forth, brother. Whatever we're doing, that spring within becomes a river without. And then the river without goes to dead, desertified places and makes them come alive. And that could look like anything. It could look like just Noticing somebody looks a bit down at the bus stop and giving them an encouraging word. Or it could look like, you know, helping, helping your neighbor who you know is really sick um, and, you know, go, going through terrible, you know, treatments or what have you and going and supporting them practically. Or it could look like praying for people and prophesying to them. It can look like doing miracles and healings. It can look like just, just recognizing that the very ordinary things you do in your life are alive with the glory of God. You know, if you, if you love to paint, let it be alive with the glory of God. If you love to go on walks, let it be alive with the glory of God. All of this is kingdom. Because it's within you. Unless you don't want it to be kingdom, or you haven't realized it is, in which case you're, you're kind of reactivating something that Jesus already killed on the cross. If, if that's not too complicated to throw with one and a half minutes left to go. Um, so our awareness of being in the king, under the kingship of Jesus, this is what it means. We know when we say Lord, whenever we say Lord, we are reaffirming we are in a place of humility, recognizing Jesus' lordship as the king. And 
Every time we say that, when we sing that, when we encourage one another with it, we're, we're reminding ourselves to engage with that reality. It's an invitation. Constantly, we're constantly being invited to engage with that truth. Oh, Jesus is Lord. That's wonderful. It means the whole of the kingdom comes with him and is within me. If I'm getting stressed and spun out, there are lots of things out there that are going to get you stressed and spun out, you know. Some of them really terrifying. But within us is the one who's already overcome all of that. Jesus says, in this world, you may, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've already, I've already overcome the world. Not I will overcome it, I have already overcome it. So, connect. <laughs> we, we connect inwardly with the kingdom. And when we realize we do nothing to get it, it's been put inside us. Jesus even says, before the cross is within you. I mean, plug that one through your theology. Um, <clears throat> Let me pray, and then I'll, then I'll invite Emma to, to, to tag in and just lead us in to a bit more of a, an, an activation time. But um, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are the spirit of reality, and that reality is not just a nice idea. Reality bleeds. Reality has a fragrance, a taste. Reality feels like something. Reality connects with physical matter. And you bring us into all reality. Thank you, Jesus. You are that reality. I am the way, the reality, and the life. So we receive you now. We make room in our hearts for you. Where our natural questioning, all of that is fine, but where that has squashed out those spaces in our heart that you're supposed to be enthroned on, we repent. We allow you to reorient and realign the furniture of our inner worlds. And Jesus, right now, I pray for everyone listening to this message, whatever's going on in all the different seasons and times of life, that they would now have the eyes of their heart enlightened to know the hope of the calling that they would know in the spirit of wisdom and revelation what the pulses and the energy of the Holy Spirit feel like and what it looks like for them in their unique unique context. And I pray that moving on from here, we would begin to see, like never before, the deserts around us coming to life. Thanks, Lord. Uh, Yes, so just following on from what Paul started to pray, I'm just going to remind you of the verse that he was speaking about. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, And I thought it, it would be great just to take a moment, close your eyes, and think about that verse and where, perhaps where that doesn't ring true for you in your life at the moment, where you're not experiencing peace, you're not experiencing joy, and you don't feel like you're living a life of goodness. Perhaps there's a particular situation or a person or something which doesn't feel like that at all. And I just want you in the quietness to bring that to God so that he would make you aware of that and that you can bring it to God. And as Jemima was talking about in the first half, to be really honest about how that's making you feel.
And then having done that, just say, say, ask him, Lord, what's your invitation to me? How do you want to change it? What are you saying to me in this situation? And as he speaks to you, as he speaks into that situation, that feeling, that relationship, how do you want to respond to him? And just take time to receive that peace, that joy, that goodness. That he longs for us to experience. And then um, maybe just turn to the people next to you or on your table. If you want to, or just continue in receiving from him. And just share with them what God's been speaking about and pray for each other. Um, Yeah, just for the last few minutes.